Please listen carefully. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, and I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. But what's really interesting for me is I think my mind fills in the gaps, and I think that I see a lot more than I do. Jason Romero has earned the nickname Relentless Romero. Look, we're taking it one step at a time, and the step now is law school because lawyer is a good job. He's a lawyer, a Fortune 500 businessman. And when that happened, that set off a series of events that I did not foresee. And he also ran across the United States. A lot of times people ask me, you know, didn't you want to quit when you're out there running across America? I'm like, of course I wanted to quit. On this episode of Dangerous Vision, Randy Cohen talks with Jason Romero. Let's start with, it always helps our listeners, I think, to, to know where you're coming from site-wise. We might say that, you know, big picture, there's kind of people who, you know, have no memory of ever being able to see. Uh, there's people who lost it fast in an accident or, you know, a cancer, other kinds of things. And then there's people who lose it slow, which is me. I have uh, excellent uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So my sight's been uh, getting worse for uh, the 50 or so years I've been alive. And uh, now I still see a little, but not that much. Uh, Tell us about uh, your situation. So I have retinitis pigmentosa as well. And uh, as I've lost my sight, I've gained my vision. So I think they've compensated together. (laughs) But much much like you, uh, I saw a lot uh, as I was younger. And now, um, I really see through a tunnel. Uh, and I know that because when I'm tested, that's how I test. But what's really interesting mm-hmm. for me is I think my mind fills in the gaps and I think that I see yeah. a lot more than I do. So I think what happens yes. is as I scan, my brain puts those extra pieces in place and, um, I go on about my business. But, you know, obviously, you know, I, I don't drive. I voluntarily stopped doing that. I know it's not safe. I acknowledge my business. My eyesight has decreased. Um, during the daytime, I do a pretty good job. In darker environments like restaurants, pretty much pitch black for me. Nighttime, same type of thing as well. I liken what I see to like looking through two toilet paper roll cartons. If you put one on each eye, hold them side by side. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I see. I just see like what's directly in front of me. So it really is a pan yeah. and scan. And as the closer yeah. you get to something, the more focused it is. So if I'm closer to my kid's face, you know, I can only pick up like one eye and a nose. But as I move further back and move them further away, right. I can tell where their face is, but I lose the detail. Because my, my visual acuity is 2,400 in my left eye, 2,200 in my left eye. And for a 2020 sighted person, that means what they can see, say like at 200 feet, I would have to get 20 feet away from it to see the same size image. Yeah, it's aggravating. It's, uh, this is another thing that's hard to say. It's like, it's like there's all these things wrong, right? It's like, yeah, on, on the one hand, the acuity is terrible. And then also there's this uh, these uh, narrow fields. And then also there's night vision issues. Um, and uh, so sometimes I'll say to people, look, you know, it's kind of like if you put a pair of really dark sunglasses on and then you rub soap all over them, that's probably about, you know, that's a there you um, go. thing about like me. Yeah, it's yeah, um, yeah. That's, a, that's perfect. It's a, it's a, there's a great, uh, Simpsons where, uh, Homer, um, uh, I think Bart, uh, uh, pours glue on his head and then plops a bucket on top and then they drill eye holes for him and he's attempting to drive while seeing, uh, the tunnel vision. It gives a a nice impression of the, uh, of the challenges, probably one of the best media depictions of, uh, the situation, uh, ever. Yeah. I think you and I should stay off the roads for sure. (laughs) You know, that's, that's about right because I get asked a lot as I'm running, you know, trails or road or whatever. They're like, how do you do this? And I've always thought about that because I've thought, well, I could take a blindfold and take like a hole puncher and kind of punch some holes in there so you could get see like some, but not everything. Yeah. But I like what you said about like, if there was a bucket and you drilled holes and you kind of look through what those, what, you know, what was let in, that's, that's really what it's like. You have to use that small, you know, yeah. site of reality. And as you said, pan and scan, 
forward, up, down to get all of this information and process it, but still keep moving forward. That's it's a, it's, it's a miracle our brains can put it together in any kind of coherent way. The scene is really funny. But, uh, maybe David can get the clip and, and throw the audio in. It's uh, as, as they're trying to drill the holes in the bucket, which again is glued onto Homer's head. So it's over his face. Homer's like, easy. Easy. <laughs> I love it. I'll fi- I'm going to find it. Sorry, but these guys crack me up. Okay, hang on, Homer. Two eye holes coming up. Easy. Too far. Homer, maybe I should drive. They um everything's better with Simpson clips added in David. Uh, uh so the um so all right so so um uh before we get to what you're doing now talk about talk about growing up so did you feel like you were pretty normal in terms of school athletics other things or was it pretty bad like I was just I was like I was definitely a nearsighted kid when I was in summer camp I went to a this wonderful summer camp in Maine and one of the aspects of it that probably isn't true anymore because society's changed a lot is that everybody gave each other unbelievably mean nicknames um and, uh, and my nickname was uh, DDB, which was short for deaf, dumb, and blind. And I would try to explain to people, no, I, I'm re- of course, if I'd been truly blind, they would have been nicer yeah. about it, right? But because I just had unbelievably horrible eyesight, they thought it was funny, um, which is one way in which actually becoming blind in some ways makes life a little easier. It's not yeah. quite as amusing. And um, and I would be like, I'm not deaf and dumb. I talk all the time. I, I'm just blind. But, you know, they thought DDB was funnier than just calling me blind, which I guess is uh, is true. But that being said, I was just thought of as like a normal kid with bad eyesight. Um, uh, what, what was it like uh, for you? I am definitely anything but normal. And uh, anybody who knows me will tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was not normal in other ways. But anyway, go on. <laughs> I, I actually kind of pride myself in that. You know, I've I've grown into my own skin and to love me in my own way. And, you know, the eyesight thing is just a very small part of how I'm definitely, you know, a unique individual. Um, but, you know, growing up with, with a eyesight issue and I, I was not diagnosed until I was 14. So for those younger years, I had some, I had stuff going on and I thought everybody, um, experienced the world the way I did, like in school, I, I figured nobody could see the chalkboard. But, you know, when I was diagnosed, it was great to know that I was different. But then, you know, very sparingly would I share anything with anybody. And I was evaluated at, at 14. So I was entering into high school uh, with whether or not I needed an IEP. And basically an IEP, individualized education program, determines whether a person's disability impacts their ability to access their education. It turned out I was pretty bright and I was coping and adapting as I was being evaluated. And they're like, this kid has no problem, you know, adapting to what he needs. I mean, we can get him some larger print books at the time. You know, one textbook was like eight of these other size books, you know, like one foot by two foot wide with eight volumes of it. You may have experienced it. It sounds like we're about the same age. Um, you know, growing up, it was, uh, after I was diagnosed, I found out that I was different uh, I sparingly shared it with other people because I didn't, I didn't want to be different. You know, I was like any other kid. I wanted to be homogeneous for some reason. Now I, you know, I, I think that's crazy mm-hmm. because I am so different. Um, but it was, you know, it was hard, you know, like, uh, I never, I, I did drive, but I never drove at night. My license was always restricted to daylight time only. So I would never be the guy who would go over and pick up the girl at night yeah. to take her on a date. And I always had to make excuses for that. Why that wouldn't happen. I would never be fully honest and forthcoming. Um, yeah, my, you know, my I, excuse was I was uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons and no one would go on a date with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, my excuse was I just couldn't get him to, to agree to the date at nighttime. So I guess you know, I never really ran that part of my life. But, uh, you know, that, that, and you know, there, there were a lot of different social issues. Like you go to a dance at school, it's in a dark gymnasium. Sure. And, and I may be out there dancing and boogieing, but everybody's left and I'm sitting there by myself dancing. I'm like, whoa, you know, I didn't, I didn't see that that left. Or you bump into people or you knock over the punch at the punch table and you're making excuses a lot of times. Instead of really being authentic, you know, I chose a path of having shame mm-hmm. about it. And I think that's, you know, that's actually a common path for something like with RP or a hidden challenge. You know, there's a lot of mental health issues where people take the same path because it's not so obvious. It's not like a wheelchair or a prosthetic leg or something like that. It's not, you know, you can hide it. And in my case, I hid it. I hid my challenge and I chose a path of shame. I really uh, chose to 
make myself uncomfortable and not tell other people about my issues or my needs so that they would seemingly feel more comfortable. And mm-hmm. that, that journey just grew and grew from, frankly, from the time I was 14 until I was 44 for three decades until I couldn't take it anymore and I had a breakdown. Wow. So, all right, so we, we're going to get that. So, but just so people uh, know the timeline of this journey, if you don't mind, what, what age are you now? I'm 49 years old. 49. Okay. About, about just a couple years younger than me. And so, um, good. So we can, call you we can talk about uh, the television and classic rock radio of our youth. It'll be excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, okay. So let's see. So now you're in high school, you're diagnosed. Now, do, do they tell you kind of what the progression is going to be like and, and what you're going to see like later in life and so forth? Yeah, well, the the diagnosis was insane. I mean, it's it crazy. So the eye doctor, I, I had went to a lot of different doctors getting different tests. They bounced me around. Finally, I ended up at a retinist, a person who you know looks at your retina, the right doctor. And he's looking through everybody else's tests. And his staff had done a whole bunch of tests on me. And, you know, he tells me, you know, like point blank, you know, you have, you have retinized pigmentosa, you're going blind. What do you want to do with your life, Jason? I was like, I'm going to be a doctor, lawyer. Nobody ever gone to college in my family. My mom told me that I was going to school and I get a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And I do this you know, for my family. And before we even got the words out, the doctor says, forget about it. You'll have no light perception by the time you're 30. Most blind people don't work. Learn to do something with your hands. And I got five minutes if you have any questions before my next appointment. Jeez. Yeah, that was it. And it, where, yeah, where, 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 where were you growing up? Where were you living? Denver, Colorado. I mean, it was, so it was, it's a it was big, big city with top medical centers and all, but yeah. still they're just, they're just giving you the bums rush. Yeah. Well, it, you know, the, uh, my, when my son was diagnosed with autism, uh, some 13 years ago is the exact same thing. So I always, really? think, you know, sometimes yeah. I, I was probably the precursor for my son's uh, life and his situation as well to be able to help guide him. But regardless um, you know, it really wasn't, it, it, it was more or less kind of, you know, give up. And I come from a family of fighters, you know, like I told you, my mom's single mom raised two kids, secretary, she wasn't giving up, I wasn't giving up. And that's how she raised me. She raised me, you just don't give up. You know, there's, we're not folding the cards, we're not doing anything, you're gonna live a normal life and go. And a, normal, a normal life for my mom, you know, according, a normal life, according to Cindy is much different than normal life, according to other people. <laughs> You know, my mom is five foot tall, a little bit over a hundred pounds, and she is a not even a firecracker like an M eighty. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's 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 uh, there's no excuses. We're gonna get things done, and we got things done. And mm-hmm. you know, that's that's really what dictated how my life turned out. And um, you know, what happened in my life was my mom's leadership and guidance. It had nothing to do with my eyesight. Coming up, Jason becomes a lawyer, then a businessman. So after I saw that, I was like, holy cow. And then he runs over 3,000 miles. It wasn't my dream of dreams, but at that point in time, my stepfather's attorney, my brother was an attorney. Uh, I was following, but I always felt like, you know, there's something different for me. And I knew I was uh, different, but I had went on that path. I did pre gun the LSAT, got full ride scholarship to law school. I figured, you know, it's not the worst thing. It's a good degree. Did that thing. Not, not at all crazy, but let me ask. I mean, so you say you were a little in denial on the site, but was there a party that's like, okay, here's the kind of lawyer I'm going to be where, you know, having all this difficulty reading all what won't hurt me too much, whether it's I'm going to be in court doing trials all the time, or I'm going to do some specialized kind of law. I'm going to do tax law and I'm going to know the internal revenue code inside and out. So I don't have to do a ton of reading. Uh, like the other guys do, or you know, did you have did you have a plan, or was it just like, look, we're taking it one step at a time, and the step now is law school because lawyer is a good job, and I'm good at the 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 core uh, techniques, and we'll figure the rest out later. The the great part about being a lawyer for me was people come to lawyers when they cannot solve problems on their own, mm-hmm. and you have a tremendous ability to help a person in a very trying part of their life. Yeah. That was the really, really great part about being a lawyer and a great part about the profession and the rest of it. Well, you know, everybody has their own opinion, but it wasn't, it wasn't for me at the end of the day. And what I realized was I was, um, I was not happy where I was at. And I'd been a lawyer for at this point, like probably like five, six years. 
and I was on partnership track, you know, all, all that stuff was good, but I was not the person that I, I wanted to be. I was not happy. And I had gotten married. My first child was on the way. And, you know, earlier in the story, I think I mentioned, you know, my father had left when I was younger and I did not have a good relationship with him. And my commitment to myself was if I had children, I would be the greatest father to them that they'd ever experienced. And I was not in a place, I, I knew I had to make a change with what I was doing. And that, that forced me to look for different things to do outside the law. And my, my dream had always been to go into a business career. I liked what that had to offer. When I, when I graduated college, what I found out was that to get into a really good MBA school, you had to work for two years. Nobody right. in my family you know, was able to coach me or went through that process before. And I just kind of went one thing after the other. And that's how I found myself in law school. So yeah. I went out and I, I searched for businesses that would train, uh, train you to become a good leader, a good manager, a good business person. And I came across one company that supposedly, you know, did great with their leaders, General Electric. They had a company headquartered in Boulder, Colorado. It's about 30 miles from where I lived at the time. And I went and knocked on their door until they gave me a job. And I got in. Nice. I got my foot in the door there as being a lawyer reading contracts and that lasted about six months. And I convinced my boss who believed in me and gave me a chance. And, uh, she let me embark on a business career. And I, you know, once I stepped into a business role, I inactivated my legal license and I have not reactivated it since. And you know, that led to a 10 year, year long career at GE. I got transferred to Puerto Rico. I ran GE capital in the Caribbean lived there for six years on an expat assignment. It was wonderful. I, I, I saw I saw a talk uh, when I was at University of Chicago. I saw a talk by uh, Kurt Vonnegut before he passed away. Yeah. And uh, he talked about, I forget the exact year, but he's like, you know, in 1946, I, uh, I associated myself with the most socialistic institution in the world at that time, the General Electric Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's like this is a way like you could go in and you if you showed up every day, like you had a job and then you know you had to work hard, but they would take care of you. You know, it's just it's obviously a lot of things have changed in the in the business world. So before we leave the law, I just want to give my quick stirring defense of uh of the law and lawyers, which is look, obviously there are lots of things people say about lawyers. There are a lot of mean things that I think are not totally fair. Some of them may be a little bit fair, I don't know for sure, but this is what I will say for lawyers. Um on average, it would be hard to list more than a tiny number of, of professions uh, that have more interesting people in them than the law. Um, and people may not perceive it that way. They may think, oh, my God, these lawyers, they're boring. They have their head. Their, like lawyers read books. They read the newspaper. They have opinions on things. And in my experience, like a lot of my good friends growing up became lawyers. A lot of other people I've met as an adult who I've really enjoyed spending time with are lawyers. And uh, uh, I just feel like, you know, one of the best reasons to be a, a lawyer is that you get to hang out with lawyers and have interesting conversations all day, every day. And that's uh, that's pretty great. Yeah. No, I, 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 you know, I don't think a profession divines a people or a person. I think it's a bell curve, kind of like pretty much everything else. For and sure, there, for sure. Well, there's really great ones. There's, you know, average ones. There's some not so great ones. But, you know, overall, it's it's just like anything else. I mean, I think the profession, the profession is revered for a really good reason because it's really important and it helps people at very important piece, parts of their life. And anybody who's willing to go into that situation, you know, I tip tip my hat to them. It's just like the medical profession. I mean, those are very hairy situations that people get into. And, uh, you know, there's only, <laughs> it takes a certain amount of muster to, to on a daily basis, get in there and go do that. So, you know, so, that's off all. Yeah. So now at GE, are you um, in a place now where you feel like you're getting some accommodations because of your eyesight or are you just bullying your way through everything and faking it when you need to fake it and all that still uh, all, all that way into your career? Yeah, so I'm still faking it, and uh, I, well, I I move into I move into a contracts role where I'm required to read, review, and edit contracts nonstop. That's like the first six months of the job there, and I I had literally a six inch stack of paper, and it, this was paper at the time, and I'm reading this like ten point font contract. You know, I mean it was it was unbelievable, <laughs> but, but it was one of those things. I was like. 
I have to, I have to do this. I'm just going to do the work. You know, I'm just going to yeah. spend the hours that it takes. You just, you just work a lot more hours than other people. Yeah. To make you, just work, you just work hard. That's all. Yeah. And I remember my boss used to tell me, Jason, you got to come out of your office and be social with people. And this, I was like, did you see a stack of contracts in my office? Do you want that done or not? I, 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 I have this general <laughs> that I give to my students, my kids, any, any, anybody who is, uh, you know, enough younger than me that they might conceivably listen to me. And it's just, there are very few problems that a hundred hours worth of hard work won't fix. <laughs> right? Right. You Mark, just throw a wall of work at a problem and you'll be amazed how quickly it's done. Not every problem. Obviously there's medical problems or psychological problems. I'm not saying every problem, but boy, a whole yeah. lot of life's problems. If you, if you're are willing to throw a wall of work at them, you can you can really make a dent. Coming up on Dangerous Vision. I could not fake being sighted anymore. And I ended up in a severe depression. And at that point in my time, I in my life, I did not know if I wanted to go on. A lot of times people ask me, you know, did, didn't you want to quit when you're out there running across America? I'm like, of course I wanted to quit. You're listening to the Dangerous Vision podcast a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So uh, we're going to get, before we get to the latest phase of your career, I think we have to start to talk a little about uh, running and other athletic stuff so that the pieces come together at the end. So tell me about uh, your athletics journey, if you will. What what were you into when you were younger? When did you get into running stuff, distance stuff, uh, ultra-type stuff? Tell us the story. Sure. So uh, when I was younger, I just... Yeah, you know, I played regular recreational sports, you know, like football or wrestle, play baseball, whatever, you know, those types of things. I always regretted that I didn't do wrestling. That would have been a sport where I think my eyesight wouldn't have hurt me much. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, if you were totally blind, you would have some disadvantages. But but even a little bit of sight would probably be enough for everything you need to figure out as a wrestler. Yeah, it's uh, I think wrestling is a great sport, team sport. Uh, it, I mean, they're, they're, it's just it's a tremendous sport. Athletically. Yeah, it's a nice combination of team and individual, yeah. right? It's like obviously you're in the you're in the ring, you know, alone with your opponent, but but uh, at the same time, it's obvious if you talk to any wrestlers that there's huge team camaraderie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know that that was that was great. I did not. I I had ran track a little bit when I was younger, but I was nothing, and I was never an exceptional athlete. I always considered myself, you know, average. And uh, I I ran my first marathon was when I was in law school. And that was really inspired by my uncle, Ted Epstein, uh, who's now passed away just a few years ago. But I, when I was a teenager, um, he was a lawyer and he, at age 50, he retired from being a lawyer and decided he was going to be an artist and, uh, he's going to do endurance sports. You know, I mean, total, total left turn. Right. So one, one day my stepdad tells me that we're going to go up to Boulder, which is a half hour drive from Denver up to the university up there and go see uncle Ted in a race. So mm-hmm. you know, I figure, okay, we will go see the geriatric Olympics, right? The hundred meter limp. And, um, you know, we drive up there, we drive to this field house. It's an indoor track and uh, there's nobody there. And then we go inside, the lights aren't on. I'm like, what is going on? You know? And as we're walking closer, there's this figure that looks like a person is kind of moving and we get closer and I'm like, look at my mom and my step. I'm like, what is going on? And they explained to me that my uncle Ted had staged his own six day race. And for six days he had been going around this one eighth mile track at the CU field house. He had a tent on the infield and he'd go eight hours and sleep an hour, go eight hours, sleep an hour, go eight hours, sleep an hour. (laughs) That's what he's doing. And we were there on the sixth day. The dude couldn't even talk. I, you know, I got on the track with him and it was, he was barely shuffling at like a walk, but he was trying to shuffle and he could barely talk. I mean, he looked like he was dead, but you know, in my head, I just, I was hooked. I like, I, I, I had seen and witnessed that anything is possible because I knew uncle Ted is this like, you know, skinny, nice, smiley attorney. And then here's this guy who for six days had been on his feet and, just worn, you know, he, the guy should have died. How many, how many, how many laps did he do? He did 323 miles in six days. 323. Jesus. And uh, so, so after I saw that, I was like, holy cow. And then, you know, I'd seen Ironman triathlon and that kind of sparked the interest. So you probably about 10 years, a little less than that afterward. I saw that the Denver was having its first Denver international marathon. I signed up, I went and ran the marathon 
And uh, I did okay. I, like 314, I think, is what I came in. Wait, you did 314 at your first marathon? I mean, did you run a bunch of marathons to practice? Or you're saying, like, no, you just yeah. kind of, you never, like, had you had you run, you know, 20 miles before? No, I, I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, it, it was the funniest thing because as I That's recount, amazing. you know, I had ran, I was in law school. So I'd run when I was, you know, before I was going to the library and after class. And then on the weekends, a few times, I had my mom who lived in Denver she would drive me up to Boulder and drop me off where I lived at law school. And then I'd run back down this highway, the Boulder Turnpike, into Denver. We didn't even know how far it was. I didn't bring water. I didn't bring food. I didn't bring – I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I just was like, I don't know. I got to just run, I guess. And uh, you know, that's what I did. It's, it was the craziest training method. But now, actually, it's something that I employ as a training method, and I know what I'm doing. So maybe I wasn't out yeah. of my mind. So, all right. So you, so you run your first marathon and, and then, uh, how quickly is it that you're like, marathons are for wimps. I need to run like 12 straight marathons in a row. Like my uncle Ted, Mm -hmm. like, like, did that happen pretty fast that you're just like, I'm, I'm changing the game or, uh, was it a slow evolution? Yeah, not at all. After that first marathon, I moved on to marriage, kids and work, uh, Mm -hmm. probably about 30 pounds, smoke cigars, uh, it, it kind of culminated when I was in Puerto Rico drinking rum and cokes and eating fried foods. And I have this picture of me holding uh, <clears throat> my third child who was born in Puerto Rico um, mm-hmm. on a sailboat in the Caribbean, smiling with like about three chins and a nice gut. And just I, I was 35 years old and uh, uh-huh. I was tremendous. I, I was a mess. You know, I, I was a mess. Yeah. And I say a mess because I would let myself go, but also I was working a lot of long hours as a GE, which is you know, a bunch of overachieving back slappers and you know, just the stress of trying to perform in, a, in an organization like that. I was on a downward slide, and actually it all, it all turned around. Uh, I, I mentioned I have three children, I believe, but my son, Sage, he has autism, and he was diagnosed in, when I was first moved to Puerto Rico. And after about three years there, it was time for him to start uh, school, uh, preschool, kindergarten. And there was no yep. school there on the island for kiddos yeah. with autism. So we started a school, me and my wife at the time. And uh, in order to raise money, you know, I did the business plan, you know, help find the, the place and you know, work with the folks who are actually going to do the teaching at the school. But in order to raise money for that, that's when I signed up for my second marathon. So that was some 15 years after my first marathon and I was a mess. Yeah. I, I, I barely limped through that. That was in 2007. But after that poor showing at that second marathon, in 2007, you know, I, 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 uh, pulled up. The boot. You said, if I'm going to run marathons, I need to be in better shape than yeah. this. I got to cut back on the cigars. Exactly. So it all, it all changed <laughs> yeah, after that. That was the big slap in the face and saying, you know, I'm not going to let myself go. Uh, the net, my third marathon, I ran four months after the second marathon. I did qualify for Boston, ran like a 304. And then I went on to triathlons. I did an Ironman triathlon four months after that. And uh, it just continued to grow. And so, um, so tell, tell us about, uh, some of the things you've, uh, you've, you've achieved in terms of the, in terms of the athletic stuff. Uh, I'm not good at this part. You may need to ask some more questions. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What's the, all right. F- fair enough. What's the, what's the, what's the furthest you've ever run that, uh, I don't, I, I well, what's the furthest you've ever run without stopping? Furthest I've ever ran without. Would you ever do like a hundred mile race or something like that? Yeah. I think the farthest that I've ever ran without stopping, like without walking intentionally, it's probably about a yeah. hundred miles. And that, that, miles. that was in a 153 mile race called Spartathlon in Greece. And, uh, <laughs> there's other races that I did. Is it, does it actually take place in Sparta or is it just a reference to the Spartans and yeah. their uh, enormous determination? Yeah, this is a tremendous race. So this is, you know, the race runs from the Acropolis in Athens to the, mm-hmm. to the foot of the statue of King Leonidas in Sparta. And nice. the route is traced from, you know, you've seen the movie or everybody has heard of the movie 300 and Leonidas and 300 Spartans basically took on the entire Persian army, thousands of thousands of people. And the messenger of Pheidippides was dispatched from Athens 
And Herodotus writes that he arrived in Sparta the next day. So they give him a day and a half. So a day of sunlight and a half, 36 hours. So the race Spartathlon, they give runners 36 hours to run 153 miles, the route that Pheidippides would have ran in order to reach Uh it. Otherwise, you're out of the race. And mind you, this is a tremendous race, Spartathlon. A lot of Americans don't even know about it. Um, There's 390 runners that tow the start line. The U.S. gets 25 runners, 25 slots. It's like the Olympics of ultra running. One third of the starters actually finish. And half of the people DNF or you know, are out of the race at mile 50 because you can't run fast enough. And yep. uh, anyway, that's, that's part. Uh, t- it took me three years to actually finish that. The first two years, I did not make it. And the third year, I finally made it. So thir- 36 out, 153 miles and 36 hours over, uh, presumably uh, some rough terrain in there, right? Not, not, uh, it's not, not all flat, uh, smooth sailing. Yeah, no, it's hot and humid and there's mountain climb and, but it's beautiful, but you're in Greece. So what do you want? Now, do you do some of these things where you like run up a mountain? <laughs> I, I do that. We have this. Race so isn't there a Pikes Peak thing? Isn't there a Pikes Peak thing or something? I don't know. You tell yeah, me. I train actually on Pikes Peak, uh, the Pikes Peak Marathon. There's a 13 mile course that runs up to the top, which is 14,000 feet. You start at 6,000 feet elevation, run up to 14,000 feet. That's 13 miles, turn around and run back. And that's part of my nice. training. I did that a couple of weeks ago with a friend. And uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite runs uh there's the leadville 100 that we have out here in colorado are you allowed are you allowed to wear rollerblades for the down <laughs> you do not want to have rollerblades on that track on that single track. no, no. way <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not on road it's on single track trail so there's bouldering oh, wow. and culverts and all kinds of crazy stuff you gotta no no now i uh, just checking back in terms of the ice part do you do you have guides on any of this or are you running this you can see just enough to to uh not trip over the boulders and stuff so at this point i prefer to have a person with me but i i don't have a person with me a lot of times it just takes a longer mm-hmm. period of time how i run now yeah. how i run trails now is i always run with trekking poles that's a very important thing for me because then i have four points of contact with the ground. Mm-hmm. I'm, I know I'm going to trip. I know I'm going to fall. I know I'm going to get bloody. Whenever I go run, I accept these yeah. things and I know that. So I don't get upset yeah. when they happen. It used to be I'd get upset. Now it's just going to happen. Um, right. the other, um, do, you, do, you use a, do you use a stick at all just in on regular you know, life stuff walking around? A cane. I do use a cane when, it, when I'm in dark environments or heavily populated environments like, a, like yeah. if I go to a sporting event or to the airport or something like that where people are crisscrossing. Because, yeah. You know, no, it's huge. Look, the, the number one thing is then when you bump into people, they're nice to you instead of punching you in the face. <laughs> right? Most of the time. That's the biggest, that's the, the, that's the number one benefit. The number two benefit is that they try to get out of your way because they see yeah. that you're blind. The number three benefit is that sometimes you hit their ankles with your cane and realize, oh, I was about to walk into that person, right? <laughs> there, there's really uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, benefits. I'm, I'm a big fan. I have a collapsible one that I can fold up and put in my pocket. Yeah. So I have it with me all the time, but I only use it a small, small fraction of the time, but those times are, are crucial. Oh yeah. And the other one is the not falling down steps and dying. We sound similar. Yeah. Yeah. They were yeah, exactly. We are P people got to stick together. So the, uh, okay. So tell me about running across the whole country. Okay. So, um, you know, I had this eyesight thing and I chose a path of shame instead of sharing it. And I had this internal thing that I had struggled with my entire life and I felt like it was robbing me of life. I was blaming it for different aspects of my life where I'd struggled or I had felt inept or I'd always felt second best or not good enough or unworthy, all this type of stuff. And it came to a point where I could not fake being sighted anymore. I had, I voluntarily stopped driving. And when that happened, that set off a series of events that I did not foresee. Um, I found myself unemployed. I found myself divorced, three kids, applying for social security, getting a letter from the federal government saying you're permanently and totally disabled. And I ended up in a severe depression. And Mm -hmm. at that point in my time, I, in my life, I did not know if I wanted to go on. And I had very, very scary thoughts and I did not want to be in that place. And I was, it, it was, it was not a, it was not a good place. And what I realized, you know, this, this point in my life 
had been bubbling up. And it was, it was a point where frankly, I just could not, I couldn't hide it anymore. And I had to accept myself for what I was and for what I wasn't. And that I, I volunteered a a variety of different places. One of the places I support is a homeless shelter. And when I was in this depression, I called up the executive director. I told him, I was like, I need to go somewhere. I can't sit here in this house and continue to be depressed. I I mean, something really bad is going to happen. I got to get out, you know, let me go. And he's like, come volunteer. So I went and volunteered and I was helping homeless people. And my job at the shelter was to work a clipboard. And when they opened the doors at 10 AM, they would let the the folks from the streets in and they'd line up and whoever got in line first got showers. We give 20 showers a day free. And my job was to make sure the person got in the shower, only stayed 20 minutes and got out and you'll get the next person in and do that. Well, I'm sitting here doing my clipboard thing. And in the midst of doing this clipboard thing, I didn't hear voices and it's not like Hollywood or something like that. But I felt like I was being called to run across America. And I don't know a way to explain that because all, you know, some people will say, you know, Jason, you're crazy. I thought I was crazy. I thought I was insane. I'd never experienced anything like it, but I know what I experienced. And it was a calling. And it wasn't like I had a dream to run across America. Who the hell wants to run across America, right? How, how crazy can you be? But, <laughs> but at that point, I said, you know, I know my mind. I know as a lawyer, I could pick that whole experience apart, act like it never happened or shove it to the back of my mind and never act on it. Or for one time in my life, I could put away all of my desires and do something for something else that I thought was bigger than me that was calling me to do something. And I sent a text to my mom. I said, mom, I'm going to run across America. And in five seconds, she texted back and said, I'm in. And that, nice. that began an 18 month journey of preparation, training, begging for money, trying to figure out how I would run across America, how I would separate from my kids for however long it took um, mm. to do. And I, I prepared for 18 months and then I took off on the run. Now, now, was this the first time in your life you'd had a calling like that, what the religious folks call a vocation? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'd never experienced anything like that before. Nothing, I, nothing like that. Ever yeah. Before. I had never met somebody who had had that experience before. Yeah, you know, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, I've seen things on TV, and I'm like, okay, what? Well, you know, yeah, it's, it's like field, it's like Field of Dreams, yeah. you know? Yeah, here's the voices, here's the angels. You know, that th- none of that happened, yeah. but I know, I know what happened, and uh, yeah. I, you know, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it, and I went, and I did it. Now, where where do, where do you start and where do you finish? Uh, started in Los Angeles, California, at Santa Monica Pier, mm-hmm. and I ended mm-hmm. at New York City Hall. In New York City, Manhattan. Right. Yeah. My mom was my, yeah, she was my sag wagon. And when I set out to do this, I was like, you know, I need at least one person to drive a car with me. I did have, my plan also was to run with the baby stroller. If something happened to my mom or she had to go back or, you know, just if something happened. And I was going to take the baby stroller and run. But yeah, my mom drove my brother's 12 year old minivan uh, that we had to rebuild the transmission a couple times (laughs) in, in process. Uh, but yeah, my, my mom drive along beside you or did she go kind of run errands to prepare for the end of the day, pick up food, get the gas, all that kind of stuff to, to be ready for you for, for the end of your day. And you just meet at a prearranged spot. You know, my mom, we would, uh, leapfrog as best we could every mile when possible. Sometimes that would stretch out to five miles, you know, depending on whether there was a shoulder of the road or what we were going, if we're going through a desert or something like that. Um, and she would leapfrog me and then run across the highway and stand there with like uh, food and water because I had, I was eating 10,000 calories a day and I couldn't carry all that. So she was taking, I mean, she was doing the job of like five people. She would be like, yeah. you know, a crew to do that. She would also scout the route. Uh, she'd also, you know, drive me to and from the place, massage my foot. One time my ankle was compacted, which means like my ankle got locked into a, a, like a crunched state and she had to yank the thing yeah. out and you know, we had a doctor send us wow. a video about how to do it. I mean, it was, she did everything. Was there a big, well, okay. So, so I guess uh, before you get to what, what you did, like, was there a big reaction to that or was it just like all in your heart? I set out to do this thing that I thought something else wanted me to do. So after it was done, I was kind of like, okay. You know, I, I even like, you know, had fantasies of Hollywood. Like, you know, if, if this is God that wants me to do this, maybe I'll get to New York and poof, I'll be able to see again. Right. And 
you know, there's this miracle happened. Well, no miracle happened. And there was no metal when I got to New York and it wasn't like Forrest Gump where all these people are chasing, you know, stuff, you know, me and my mom got there and it was done finally. And we went back to Denver and I'm sitting here. I was like, okay, that was something else, but I'm still unemployed. I'm still blind. My eyesight had gotten worse as a result of, you know, or during the run, I don't want to say as a result of the run, but during that time period, my eyesight became worse. And, um, you know, I, I didn't understand, you know, what was this calling if this, if this was the calling. And then I actually got a call and the call was, uh, from a big company, Amazon, and they wanted me to come tell them the story. And I said, what story? And they said, the story of you running across America. And after I so could have just waited for this podcast and got it for free. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and you know, so I went out to Seattle and I realized I was like, Oh my gosh, like this could actually be a career and like more, more and more places called me to start speaking. And, and I didn't realize what was happening, but as I told the story, basically I told my story in all of its, you know, horror and misery and greatness and success and it really impacted people. And I realized that I had some very important things that I have learned in my life and result of this run created a presentation and uh, I began a speaking career. And then after probably about a year, I had some people at a, in, in one particular event, a convention, they came up and they talked to me after like, well, where's your book? We want to buy your book. I said, I don't have a book. They like, every speaker has a book. <laughs> and uh, you know, my kids had come and seen me speak a few times. And sometimes when they had listened to me, they would say, dad, I didn't know that part of your story. And what I realized was my kids never realized the trials, tribulations, successes that had got me to that point in time. And I thought there were some very important things I needed to share uh, with my kids um, that uh, just needed to be told. There was a great book of a professor uh, at Carnegie Mellon and the title is escaping me, but he was diagnosed with cancer had, you know, two young kids and he was going to die, die before those kids were going to grow up. So he wrote this book and that was kind of like what I was thinking. I was like, I got to write a book for my kids about what happened. And, and then I took the next nine months and I wrote a book and, uh, I was going to just spiral bind it and put it in my kids hope box and leave it for them. And they could read it, you know, whenever my time came and, uh, my oldest daughter challenged me to publish it and share it you know, with the world, which was scary, scary. And I did. And, uh, that led to a speaking career, which is what I do right now. And, uh, I go all over the place and I speak to all different types of audiences. I get paid to talk to, you know, companies and conventions and conferences and that type of thing. But I do a lot of, uh, pro bono speaking at schools or youth detention centers or places of addiction where people are struggling and I tell a story that I hope will give people hope and encourage them and inspire them and believe that absolutely everything and anything is possible. And even in the depths of the darkest places that we will find ourselves in, we can always find a way out and we are capable of doing that. And uh, I share the lessons I've learned along the way. Um, we have a few questions that we like to ask uh, all our guests uh, that, that uh, you know, we think might be helpful to the audience. So one question I like to ask people is about if there's any cool gear or tech uh, that they uh, either something that's very dear to them and special or something that's come along lately that's made it easier uh, to, you know, have a great life, uh, you know, with, with blinds or even not with blinds, even one that would be amazing for all people. Any, any, uh, I, I personally am kind of a gadget freak. So I'm, I'm always interested in ideas on cool new stuff. So anything you're recommending? Yeah. So there is a new thing that's out that actually I introduced David to there's this, uh, and I'm not, I'm, I'm trying it out right now. It's called a, we walk cane, W-E-W-A-L-K. And it's this cane that um, takes information from, say, like Google Maps, and it gives you directions, GPS directions where you're going. Because a lot of times I can't, you know, I don't see a sign if I'm in a foreign city or something in my own hometown Mm -hmm. where I'm at. But I'm in a different city. You know, I don't know if it's like this block, next block, what have you. And I just want to get to, you know, my local Taco Bell or, you know, whatever it is. And the other thing that this cane does, too, is it has hip. Uh, heptic sensors so that if you're going to hit a branch, because with tunnel vision, I'm looking at the ground. Usually if there's a yeah. tree with a low lying branch, usually that'll catch me in the head. 
but it's got these sensors that pick that up. And I'm in the process of getting trained up on this cane and trying that out. So that's actually something cool that I'm looking forward to. And that, interestingly enough, was developed by a group out of Turkey and London, the Young Guru Academy. So, I mean, this is, you know, it's beautiful. It's global. It's this great technology. I don't know. Yeah, we'll, let's see what happens. So, so spell, spell the name again. We Walk. W oh, we walk W A L K. It's called the we walk, walk cane. And if you if you look it up on YouTube or whatever, it's yeah, I'm gonna have a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really interesting. All right, awesome. So then another question um, I like to ask people is for book recommendations. You know, because uh, you know I got to the point where my eyesight was so bad I couldn't read uh, books on paper. Um, and so I, uh, but then I got Bookshare. Uh, you know, and and just the ability to listen. Um, you know, at, at very high speed on audio. So now I'm trying to catch up on the most enjoyable and entertaining books ever written. So you know, I always say to people, you know, look if you, if you've got a book that's like you know a uh, 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 going to sear my soul and, and, uh, you know, be a deep, important book of my life. Sure. You know, I, I don't mind hearing about that, but what I really want is, uh, just a really, really enjoyable, fun read where when I'm done, I'm like, boy, I can't wait to read that book again. Or, Hey, does this author have another book like this? Uh, so any old favorites, any new, new favorites, anything you're reading lately that's blowing your mind, anything you want to suggest? Yeah. There's this great book called running into the dark by this guy, blind guy ran across America. It is a tremendous read. I can read <laughs> Now, um, that, sounds like a winner. The, the book I'm into right now that I'm actually loving that I'm going back and rereading different part is called The Art of Joy, and it's a book that um, is it, it's basically written based off of a week long meeting between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and they talk about a myriad of su- subjects. But on the audio book, they have two characters that you know one sounds like the Dalai Lama, one sounds like Archbishop Tutu, and they just talk about super cool stuff. And there's some really wonderful gems in there that, uh, you know, I just, I'm just always reminded. And I, I uh, have a, I always leave a listen with a sense of gratitude after listening to that. So the story of, of the Dalai Lama being told the Dalai Lama joke on Australian TV. Tell me. This is great. So basically, um, the, 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 the Dalai Lama uh, is, on, is being interviewed on a big popular show on Australian television. And the Australian interviewer says, um, uh, what did the uh, Dalai Lama say to the guy at the pizza shop? And the Dalai Lama says, I don't know. And the Australian, guy, and the Australian interviewer says, make me one with everything. <laughs> and, and the Dalai Lama has no idea what the hell is going on. No idea. Why. Is there a video? Why? This is a funny joke. That's great. But I, I salute you, Australian TV interviewer who told the Dalai Lama joke to the Dalai Lama, <laughs> even though he probably wouldn't have any idea what was going on. I fully favor that wow. sort of humor. So, all right, last question. Uh, I always say to people, look, I'm not a professional at this. I'm a finance and entrepreneurship professor who's just, uh, you know, taken up interviewing uh, for because it gives me an opportunity to meet amazing people like you. And um, uh, as a result, I'm not smart enough or a good enough interviewer to ask you the right questions because if I could ask you the best questions, I'd get your very best story uh, by asking a smart enough question. So instead, I'm just going to uh, take the desperate approach of saying to you, What's your best story? Like if you get up, so, so somebody pays you a bunch of money to go give a speech um, and you're going to stand up there. Maybe there's one like funny story that we haven't heard yet, you know, or entertaining story or deep story or interesting story that you would always want to include in, in your speech because it's, it's such a great tale, but that we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, lay it on us. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think if there's uh, one gem of wisdom that I have to share that I learned from this, uh, it has to do with forgiveness. And uh, sometimes this comes up in my different talks or in interviews or what have you. But a lot of times people ask me, you know, Did, didn't you want to quit when you're out there running across America? I'm like, of course I wanted to quit, you know, multiple <laughs> times. And then the question becomes, well, why? And that was a very difficult question for me to answer early on. And that took a long time to process, synthesize, and try to understand, well, why did I not quit? And what did I learn in that that I can share with society at large or in this speaking and try to help other people understand that. And there's, you know, mental strength, my four tenets of mental strength, but it, this is, it's about the fourth one. And the four tenets for me are hope, patience, consistency, and forgiveness. And 
forgiveness for me really is the most important tenant of mental strength, if you will. And this is the story about forgiveness for me. When I first started out on that run, uh, <clears throat> you know, it was like the greatest thing ever. I was like, oh, I can run and this is actually happening. That was like, that lasted one day. And after mm-hmm. that, it was miserable. And, you know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd get ran over by cars. We'd get lost. You know, I'd you know, get in a fight with my mom. You know, you know, you name it, whatever. You know, I'm going blind. It was just pity party. And what I found was that everything, all my problems were external to Jason. And I had talked for a long time about forgiveness and tried to teach my kids about that too. But I really was not living a life of forgiveness. And it took me... 1500 miles halfway across America until I got to that point where I realized the forgiveness that needed to happen did was not outside of Jason. The forgiveness that needed to happen was inside. And that was probably the toughest part of the run because I realized that all of the problems in my life were not coming from outside of me. They were coming from inside of me. And I had to look at myself and I've done things that I'm not proud of, just like we all have. I've done things that I don't want anybody to know about, but I still try. Tell us about some of those. Oh, no, just kidding. (laughs) You you have perfectly, perfectly imperfect timing, just like I do. And, uh, and, and, you know, that was the point when I realized I need to forgive myself and I need to accept myself for exactly who I am. Cause you know, and when I did that and I forgave myself that like, I, I can't even tell I, I have, I did GoPro videos every morning and every night when I was out on the run and on the day that this happened, I have the GoPro video of me running in Kansas and I was at mile 52. And after all this had happened, I'm running like an eight minute mile smiling ear to ear and talking into the camera. And I know what had happened. I didn't talk into the camera, explain, you know, this story, but I know that day in that moment. And that was a transitioning point for me in my life. And that enabled me to, to truly start my, my work of forgiveness with other people in my life, my relationship with my father, my, you know, whatever you name, what supposedly had happened that I'm carrying around baggage about, you know, that's the true gift, if you will, that this run gave me. And that gift of forgiving myself, it goes much deeper than just like forgiveness about acts or that type of thing. What it really is, it's a statement about living authentically and accepting ourselves for exactly who mm. we are. There's no excuses necessary. We are perfect just as we are. And if there's a message I can say with my audience or close this podcast, letting people know, it is just that. And you don't need to run across America to, to make the decision to do that. A decision can be made in an instant. Accept yourself. Forgive yourself. You're going to live a life, great life because of it. That's a, a great note to finish on, Jason. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us on the Dangerous Vision podcast today. This was fantastic. Thanks a bunch. Have a great one. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision podcast a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.